I would like to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. And for those of you relatively biblically astute, you're saying that sounds an awful lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And you are correct. That's where our text is going to be this morning. If you don't have a handout, feel free to raise your hand and trusty Les and his team will get you one. It's a good way to take some notes. There's no fill-ins today, but loads of space for you to jot down uh, what, what may be going on in your heart and mind. We talk a lot about right and wrong in here, which is fitting because um, we're a church and um, the whole topic of ethics and morality um, is, is central to who we are as a church family, to who we are as people. And what I want to ask you this morning is this, think about right and wrong and morality and the code of ethics and all these kinds of things. My hunch is that you are having these kinds of conversations all the time. Sometimes you're having them in your mind. So you see something going on or someone is talking to you in some certain way. And um, if you're a slower processor or more of an introvert or someone who sort of avoids confrontation, you might already be arguing with them in your mind and you might replay that conversation. You're having conversations about right and wrong all the time. Sometimes you use words. Sometimes you're having the conversation with actual people. Sometimes you're arguing maybe with an article that you've read or something you've scrolled on or a post or a news article or something someone else has said. Some of the questions that are um, common to our age, I don't think this is uncommon though to any age, but I don't know because I've only lived in this age. Um, And that is this, that people argue and wonder, um, do ethics change over time? Does right and wrong apply to a group of people, um, and then a different set of right and wrong apply elsewhere. The whole idea of relativity, right? Um, There is some in our society, in fact, I think that much of the underlying current of misunderstanding and argument and bitterness and frustration and unfriending that's going on, I think much of it stems from this. There are some in our City. Let's just go city because that's really local, a little bit more definable. There are some in our city who say that society sets the standard for right and wrong and then judges people based on that standard. Okay? Society sets what's right and wrong and then judges people based on that standard. There are others in our city who believe that society doesn't set what's right and wrong, but that there is a higher standard of right and wrong, and that that standard of right and wrong judges societies. Does that make sense? Right? Two very different worldviews. Do you see why there might be some arguments at Thanksgiving over this? A lot, right? In fact, not just at Thanksgiving, not just at family vacations. This is going to come up time and time and time again. So what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at some of these things and think it through. Uh, one of the things I do on my lunch hour for fun uh, here at church is I, um, I like to watch um, apologists and evangelists um, just share their faith and have conversations with different people. I learned so much from it. Uh, one of my favorites is a guy named uh, Dr. Frank Turek. Dr. Frank Turek has spoken on this stage two different times, and um, he has all sorts of wonderful videos. He tends to go into college um, campuses and um, 
just as an apologist. He's a defender of the gospel, a defender of the existence of God. I want you to watch this short exchange. The whole, minute, the whole video is about nine minutes. And um, make a note of this so that we're true to this. But we will put a link to this video um, in our, our YouTube version of this sermon. So you can go back and kind of find it. Uh, but this is Frank Turek um, talking to an atheist, having a discussion about what is right and wrong. Okay, so take a look. But still, we know Nazis were evil because we all collectively agree that what they did is bad. What you just said, though, just contradicted what you said earlier. Because you said if, if the Nazis had won and convinced everybody that murdering Jews was, was right, you admitted that would still be wrong, even if everyone collectively agreed it was right. Okay, so that goes on for nine minutes, this little exchange back and forth. Here's what I want you to see, though. I want you to see the end of this video exchange, because there's some really, really good practice. If you are a professing Christian, there is some really, really good practice for us in watching others have conversation with avowed atheists, um, because it, it can teach us, it can help instruct us and model for us how to have those conversations. What's really amazing about this is these two people see the world as totally different places. This kid has a lot of courage to stand up at a mic and express his views, right, against a trained um, apologist. Watch how this exchange ends and see if there's something we can learn. Look at the look on both of their faces. Notice... Notice that it ends not in a screaming match, not in a huff, not in anything like that. Totally different. Scout's honor, you give me a book, I will read it. All right, I'm going to give you a book. And if you don't read it, you're being immoral. (laughs) I, I would be being immoral because I'm betraying your trust. Right, and that's wrong, universally. Yes, because okay, we agree thank you. that lying is wrong. <laughs> thank you, Matthew. Okay, listen, a lot to learn from that. There are things to learn from your mind and your mouth and your countenance. We can and must give a rationality for our belief system, a defense of God, a joyful proclamation of the gospel, yet with gentleness and respect. Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? Isn't that what Jesus did? Does that mean we're always nice according to the world's standards and never stand up and never have any kind of confrontation? No. But we can end our conversations like that. There was a lot of respect. There's a lot of polite listening that Frank does on the stage with the mic uh, in giving power away to have an actual conversation and not just a monologue. Love it. So go and check that out. Here's what we're doing today. We are looking at law as a genre of the Bible. And what I'm hoping with this series is that as we understand the parts, we will understand the whole a lot better. If we don't understand genre, if we don't understand where we are in the conversation, what happens is there's all kinds of um, potentially adding meaning to the text that we don't want to add. It's not there. Or removing meaning from the text. Because we read it based on how our week's going, based on how our digestion is going from last night's meal, right? We can, we can interpret things very, very clearly from how we're feeling in the moment, what's going on in the world around us in the moment. So the question is this, how did Jesus read law? 
Law is a genre of the Bible. We're going to get to that. How did Jesus read law? The title of the series is Reading Over Jesus' Shoulder. And the whole idea is just as we are reading scripture, recognize that two-thirds of your Bible, the Old Testament, that's the Bible Jesus had. When he was reading scripture, that's his Bible. That's what he read. So anytime we're reading the Old Testament, we can read over his shoulder, meaning as I'm reading this, how would he have read this? And this tagline says it all. Before it is ours to apply, it was his to fulfill. Okay, so we're going to see that with law. I would submit to you that without the lens of Jesus and the gospel, the good news he came to proclaim and then deliver on, without the lens of Jesus and the gospel, we misread and therefore misunderstand the Bible in all of its different genres. Uh, I shared this last week, so just by way of review, I had a bunch of wants. I want the world. I want the whole world. That's a movie quote. Um, I want, I want, I want, I want. I want a bunch of things, but I just want to let you know, these are my hopes for this. I'm not getting all like Bible nerdy on you just for the academic sense, just to understand more of the Bible or going deeper. I want some of these different things to go on. Um, Some of you financial types, what does ROI mean? Return on investment. Okay, in layman's terms, here's what I would call it. What you can expect from what you give. Okay, what you can expect from what you give, a return on investment. We do this all the time, whether we call it that or not. Let me give you an example. I want to say a great huge thanks to Neighborhood Bible Church for a couple of weeks ago hosting the Hope for the Journey Conference. Okay, here's, amen. Um, Here's what you're doing. Pay attention to this. Every single time, Neighborhood Bible Church, that you give a dollar in the offering at this church, you are actively supporting a community of people in our city who desperately need support. Our hope and prayer for this, I love that this made it to the prayer guide. Our hope and prayer for this is that this training, which is so Christ-like, so Christ-centered, developed by a Christian, would end up at John Muir Middle School would end up at our local high schools and elementary schools, that, that people would be living and expressing the truths of the gospel, the truths of God, without even attaching a Bible verse to it. And it's doable. So I want to say this. Uh, part of our return of investment, why would we take as a small little church and kind of do all this and host this? Well, it's because we're convinced that if we do some things, we can expect some results. We didn't do it for this. But I got two different reports. One was a little card that was mailed to me uh, last week sometime. And it said, thank you, sweet little neighborhood Bible church. You guys were so gracious. And I felt so loved. I felt so seen. This is a difficult time and topic in my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you for hosting it. So I just passed that on to you. But here's the second thing. Um, Help One Child, who we partnered with, they let us know. They said there was one person that was so incredibly blown away that a church would grab hold of this. Not just a few individuals, but that a church would see and sort of begin to implement this, and it gave her hope at her church that things could change and she could feel more supported and seen um, as a parent who's dealing with a child from trauma. So there were some great returns. We didn't do that to say, oh, I hope I get a card. I hope we inspire someone else's church. Those are the things we can expect because we're investing in this. Now, let me just say this. What is our return on investment in studying genres of the Bible, 
Okay? Let me give you a few things. You can jot these down if you want. But here are the results that I think we can expect if we give ourselves to understanding the whole message of the scripture. Number one is this, stronger faith and more passionate worship. Stronger faith and more passionate worship. I believe that as we see the genres and pieces of the Bible, the law is one of those. That as we see those pieces fitting together, the author of salvation that we just sang about will be glorified. I think your resolve and firm trust in the sufficiency of scripture is going to skyrocket as you dig deeper into Bible study like this. When you see how the parts fit into the whole over centuries of writers and different writers from all different backgrounds, you will see and celebrate the author of it all like never before. Here's a realism. I thought about this. I thought, what if one of my kids wrote a book? They said, Dad, I published a book. I wrote a book. I said, wow, that's great. I'm so proud of you. I'm so excited about that. Isn't it true that no matter what I say about that, if I never look at or read the book, my actual stamp of what I think about the author is influenced by that? What if he comes to me and says, hey, did you read the book? No, but I bought it. Did you read the book? No, but it's in a glass case on the mantle. I look at it all the time. Did you read the book? At some point, he's going to stop asking, and he's just going to say, gee, that feels kind of hurtful. Dad doesn't really care about my book, right? Here's a, here's a realism. This isn't here to guilt you into reading the Bible, right? We always say, these are the pew Bibles that sit here. We always say, if you don't have a Bible, take this. I can't think of a better way to invest money as a church than to buy Bibles and hand them out for free. We won't even come and quiz you if you're reading it. We don't really, we we care, but that's not a condition, right? So I'm not here to guilt you into reading your Bible more, but it stands to reason that the way that we treat the book reflects a lot about what we say and think about the author in, in, in real life, not just our words. All right, we move on. Number two, uh, we will have a healthier church. What's the return on investment for understanding the Bible better? We'll have a healthier church. The book of Ephesians says that the church is to build itself up in love. Does God have a huge part in that? Say yes. Yes. God has a huge part in that. We have a part in it as well. So our church is built up in love as you, Sharon, are built up in love. As you, Christopher, are built up in love. So our collective whole health as a family, as a church, is very clearly tied to and reflected by its individual members. Doesn't that make sense? It's the picture of a body. All right, number three. We'll be more biblically informed. More biblically informed living. The way that we do church, the way that we do finances, the way that we do relationships, the way that we do entertainment, the way that we do travel and politics and sports and anything under the sun ought to be informed biblically. Here's what's curious. Oftentimes, when someone says, I'm going to pick on Eric for a second. Eric's not like this, so it's a safe bet. Sometimes people say, oh, that Eric, he really knows his Bible. I've grown up in the church, and oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes, here's what that means. He quotes a lot of scripture. He has a mind that's able to capture a lot of scripture, 
And often he wields it in conversation, not as the sword of the spirit, but as a sword slicing and dicing your arguments and building himself up and being airtight right in all situations. He really knows his Bible. It doesn't always go hand in hand with that gracious, forgiving, gentleness, and respect persona that we're called to as Christians. So when we say someone really knows their Bible, I hope what comes out of us, I hope what just sort of instinctively what we think of is, man, they're so filled with grace. They're so filled with not only the knowledge of sin and they're willing to lovingly step in and confront me in sin, but their own sin and what Jesus has done to pay for that sin. They walk in that joy. Man, they really know their Bible. They're so peaceful. They're so patient. They correct with such patience and kindness. They're so loving. That's what I hope it means when we say, that person really knows his Bible. I hope we don't compartmentalize and say, this guy's got a big brain and a super sharp wit, and you better not get into any kind of Bible discussion with him because he will destroy you in the name of Jesus. Right? <laughs> like, that's not, that's not what our hope is for, for a picture of what someone who knows their Bible. All right. Um, Number four, I think doing this will have people prepared and trained to prepare and train people who serve and pray and teach and preach and lead well. So in short, what I'm saying is I think it'll help us fulfill the Great Commission. We're called to make disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. Doesn't it stand to reason that if we're to obey laws, we need to know the laws and understand kind of how that fits in the big picture of what's going on? Of course it does. All right, so as we read over Jesus' shoulder, we're we're, we're training ourselves to ask this question, how did Jesus read this? Now, it's metaphorical that we're looking over Jesus' shoulder, right? I'm not being weird and mystical with that. I'm just like, that's a, that's a metaphor. But it's not metaphorical that Jesus actually read the Old Testament. That's an incredible link to our Savior. Whenever I read the Old Testament, whenever we sing a song, we're going to close with singing a song today. These are the songs he sang. This is the scripture that he read from and heard quoted from. Now remember, the snorkel and and regulator, they're going to kind of get us deeper into scripture and kind of ask some different kinds of questions, is genre. And that's what we're looking at. So today is law. I love this from uh, an old Puritan prayer. He says this. Just close your eyes and listen to this for a second. May I consent to and delight in thy law after the inner man. Never complain over the strictness of thy demands. That's a great little prayer. It sort of reminds me of James, that I, God, just help me to meekly receive the implanted word. Help me to decide ahead of time, Lord and Savior, that you're right. And that I'll just adjust to what I get from you. All right. Uh, Maybe you're asking this morning, why do I care about the law? I think you care about the law in different seasons of time. For instance, like we're all going to drive, well, many of us are going to drive somewhere today, but if you're driving somewhere today and one of your friendly local officers is behind you flashing his lights, all of a sudden you care about the law a whole bunch more, right? All of a sudden you go, what did I do? What am I wrong? Is my registration good? Blinker out. Uh, oh yeah, 100 miles an hour is not the speed limit for Branham. I forgot. Whoop. Um, so all of a sudden you care about the law a lot in that season, right? And there may be other kinds of seasons where you don't. 
Here's an interesting statement that I've heard many, many times over my lifetime, and that is this. You can't legislate morality. Have you heard that? Raise your hand if you've heard that. You can't legislate morality. Here's what's curious. This isn't a left saying or a right saying. I think most often this is said by people whose laws are being imposed that they don't like at the time. People who aren't currently in the majority say this a lot. And people who are in the majority making the laws sort of counter it. Now, what does you can't legislate morality mean? Is that true or is that false? You don't, we're not going to take a poll here, but just think about that for a second. Can you legislate morality? In other words, making laws, right? That's what legislation is. Okay? Just think about that for a second. I think that if what that's saying is that laws cannot make you do the right thing for the right reason, I would agree with that statement 100%. That just because there's a law, that doesn't make you do the right thing for the right reason, right? The Bible tells us that true transformation is an inside-out affair. It isn't isn't imposed on by irreligious laws, meaning just secular laws that deal with everyday life, or religious laws. That that's not how transformation works. So you can't legislate morality. If that's the case, then I agree with that. No imposed rule will ever make one good from the heart. Here's what I would add to it, though. You can't legislate morality, but someone's morality is always being legislated. You can't legislate morality, but someone's morality is always being enacted into law. Every time a law is passed, or revoked, or altered, or ignored, morality is on display. Make sense? So laws always tie to the lawmaker. It always shows and reveals the lawmaker. Why would we be interested in what the Bible has to say about law? It's because God's the lawmaker. To discover the heart of the law, the understanding of the law, what's inner inbounds and out of bounds, is to discover God. So, what I would say is legislate based on morality. You can't legislate morality. I would say legislate based on morality. Well, who says what, what's moral and what's not moral? Glad you asked. Let's look at law. The word law and the Bible is really confusing for at least a few reasons. Here's number one. It is referred to in many different ways. Let me give you five examples of how the law is referred to about the scriptures. Number one is this. It can mean the first five books of the Bible. The law, sometimes in scripture, is referring to the Pentateuch, the first five books. That's the law. But that's not it. It also can be um, a genre of biblical literature. That's kind of how we're looking at it today. It's woven into all kinds of different things. Here's a third way. It's also used as the entire Old Testament. So this gets confusing, right? When you say the law, what are we exactly talking about? Here's a fourth way. It could just be ethical instruction in the Bible. Does the Bible have a lot of ethical instruction? Yes. Those are laws. Number five, it is spiritual as well as physical. 
The Ten Commandments are written on stone. The law of love that Christ tells us is written on our hearts. So law in the Bible is kind of confusing. It's a really confusing word. Uh, And I just want to clarify terms here a little bit. That we're going to look at this as a genre, but we will also talk about the Ten Commandments. We will also talk about um, some of these other books. Okay, Uh, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're at, starting in verse 17. I want to look at Jesus and the law. How did Jesus read the law? What is his commentary on the law? Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Loads in this passage. Let me give you a couple of opening thoughts. Jesus does not do away with law as old-fashioned or irrelevant. That's a really important thing. In fact, he praises those who obey them and teach others to obey them, and he warns those who relax them and tells others to do the same. For our purposes today and in this series, here's something you ought to underline in your Bible passage or write down in all bold. I have come to fulfill them. What does Jesus think about the law? He's come to fulfill them. What's our series? Before we go to apply the law, we have to think in our minds, it was his to fulfill first. How does Jesus being here and fulfilling the law impact the way that I obey the law? Massive. This is absolutely massive. And it's a giant highway that the enemy of our souls has deceived many, 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 many people into at this very point. Then he says something really key to this whole idea in relation to the law, that if your righteousness, that that it must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to return to that in a second, but who were the scribes and Pharisees? They were the all-star varsity A-plus law keepers of the land. That's who. I grew up at a church not far from here, and I had many youth leaders that helped me in my faith journey, and I'm just eternally indebted to them, friends with many of them still. One of the things I was taught is that the Bible um, is an instruction manual. In other times, it was thought of as a rule book or a guide book. Now, all of these things were helpful, and it was well-intentioned to tell me that. But the Bible is unlike any other book you will ever hold or read. It absolutely defies simple metaphors. And if you latch on to any one of the metaphors too strongly, you'll actually completely misunderstand the Bible. Let me ask a question. Um, How many of you people in this room, by raise of hands, 
um, have products in your possession that at one time had an owner's manual, but you have no idea where it is. Raise your hand if you're that person. Keep them up for a second. Look around you, okay? It had a manual. You probably could confirm that, but you chuck that puppy right away. You don't know where it is, whatever else. Okay, here's the second group of people. How many of you have products that you know exactly where the manual is because you stored it and you have it, for the most part, not every product, but for, for, for the main ones. This is me. I'm in this camp. Okay, look around you. All right. Now, keep your hands up for a second. I want you to leave your hand up. Leave your hand up if you actually go and refer to the manual or owner's manual after, after you've owned it for a while. Wow. So I'm in the minority. I keep them. I never look at them again. I look at them as I'm sorting files. I go, oh yeah, I bought that a long time ago. Check. All right, you in the third camp. Little little secret between you and me. Caution. Maybe you're the ones who would read the Bible as a manual and get really, really giddy about it. And maybe like take your focus of the scriptures and go, this is my manual for life. This is my rule book. This is the way the product is supposed to be uh, enforced. If there's a warranty, right? You're the ones who read the warranty. Now, it may not be true. It may be people with Chuck manuals are just as likely to read the Bible this way. But if you read the Bible as an instruction manual only, you'll actually bump into some problems, right? Um, Is the Bible a book of do's and don'ts? What do you think? No? Okay. What? Okay. No, somewhat. Anyone just want to say yes? Okay. So we have all three. There's probably nuances to it. Kind of an interesting question. You'll get asked that once in a while. That will be alluded to in conversations as you talk to people about your faith. Is the Bible a a book of do's and do's? Yes. Here's, Here's what I'd say. Yes, but that doesn't get to the heart of the message. Are there a lot of do's and don'ts? Yes. A ton of it. It's this genre called law. We're talking about it right now. In case you just woke up. Um, yes, it is a book of rules, but it's way, way more than that. Think about this. With every genre we look at, bear this in mind. The Bible is a proclamation book. You know what the main message is? God has done it. God has done it. Isn't that the gospel? The gospel is not what we do for God. It's what God has already done for us. When we proclaim the gospel, we are just proclaiming a message of good news. I was a paper boy growing up. We're just the news. We're just holding up the headline. God has done it. God's accomplished it. God moves the mountains. God's authoring salvation. God's the one that pulls us out of hiding and shame and sin. God's the one who cleanses us. God's the one who has adopted us so we're no longer orphans. God has done it. Just so happens this proclamation book has a lot of rules in it. So it does have a lot of rules in it. We don't shy away from that. We don't be ashamed of that. We don't diminish that. People naturally despise rules. Let me tell you about Mark. I was with Tegan uh, on Friday over in downtown Santa Cruz, and this guy Mark was selling records. I bought Tegan a record player for Christmas. I still owed her some records. I'm like, sweet, let's look at records. So we're sort of flipping through records, talking to this guy Mark. He says, where do you guys live? I said, oh, we're from San Jose. He said, oh, do you do tech like everyone else there? I said, no, I pastor all those tech people. He goes, oh, and whenever you say that, always like takes the conversation in an interesting direction. So we start talking about the Bible. We start talking about all kinds of things. And then he says this. He was asking me about street preachers that stand right down the street from him. One of them is Daniel, who has preached on this stage before. 
He was decrying street preachers. So we're talking about things. And then he said this. He said, yeah, I have, um, he said, my least favorite book of the Bible is. And as soon as he said that, I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting conversation. Like if you have a least favorite, it means that you're engaged on some level with it. He said, my least favorite book of Bible. Any guesses? Job, Revelation, what else? Leviticus. I knew it would show up. I read somewhere that Leviticus is the graveyard of many people's Bible reading programs. They start in Genesis and they just get like, you know, Leviticus 6 and they're like, done. I'm tapping out. All right. So it's Leviticus. And here's what's so funny. I said, Mark, you wouldn't believe it. I said, I am referencing Leviticus in my sermon in two days. He goes, you are? I'm like, yeah. And so we started talking about why. What is Leviticus all about? Leviticus is about rules. Leviticus is about codes of conduct, of worship, of what's required by the priest, by the congregation. It's all these little nitty-gritties about rules. Guess what? We hate rules. I won't even point this person out or reveal whether it was male or female, but a person on our staff who sits at a desk right through there said... When I mentioned, hey, Les, put the word rules up. This individual, male or female, I'm not saying who it is, on staff, in this room, said, I'm a rule breaker. And I said, yes, you are. You need Jesus. Come to church. So this person is, is sitting here this morning. All right. Mark's surprised that I'm going to reference Leviticus. I tell him what, I said, well, here's why. I said, if you understand the genre of where you are at in scripture, I said, it makes a world of difference. I said, "Um, are law books important, Mark? And he said, yeah, they are. I said, what if you picked up a law book and just decided to read it one day cover to cover and then decided at the end of that, I hate law. I'm no longer going to study law because I hate law. It's so boring. I said, wouldn't that be a travesty? Wouldn't that be a a sad thing? He said, yeah, it would. I said, well, understanding where it is. I have read Leviticus cover to cover many times. But understanding what it is and, and how it applies and how it fits into the story is wildly important. Or else you will miss the whole message of God. You may tend to think it's just a rule book. So know where you are in the story. Careful how you read different parts of the Bible. If you read the Bible as a rule book, the Bible becomes literally a do and don't book, and it creates some problems. Let me give you just two. One is this. Much of the Bible is descriptive and not prescriptive. That means this. A lot of the Bible says, here's what happened, not here's what you should do. Make sense? So it's descriptive. It's describing what happened, not prescriptive. Here's what you should be doing. So some examples of this, if you were to read uh, this, you, you may turn to lifeless legalism. If you were to read rules and rules and rules and rules and read it as a rule book, it might turn to lifeless legalism. Here's an example. We are given in Exodus chapter 13 through 15 the historical account of God delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians through the Red Sea. If you were to read the Bible as a rule book and be sort of me-centered, which we all struggle with, then here's what might happen. It might produce this basic checklist for personal obedience. The Israelites did these things. I should do these things. 
I follow the checklist, that means it assures that God will deliver people from grand obstacles and from enemies that pursue me. I'm taking something that was descriptive. This happened, and I am now prescribing it to myself. I followed the checklist. Do you see how the enemy of our soul will will take that and twist that all day long? You followed it perfectly. Man, I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. Many parents said, I brought him to church, Dave. Every Sunday without fail, I brought him to VBS. We studied the Bible at Awana. We memorized scripture after scripture. We went to camp. We talked about this. And now they're teenagers and they're rejecting God and rejecting our love and authority. That is sort of getting a mindset of, I followed the checklist. Why isn't God coming through for me on this? Let me give you one more. Genesis 24, finding a wife for Isaac. Some of you in here are young and hopeful, right? You come across this in your Bible, you're like, oh, I see a checklist. I'm going to do these things. That's going to assure that God's going to bring me the one, right? That's nonsense. That's crazy talk. I picked sort of two, like, sort of more obvious examples, but they sort of start to blur later on. So be careful how you read the scripture. Here's the bigger issue, though. The bigger issue is that you might miss the whole point of the law in the first place. The law is not to be used as a ranking system. The law is not meant to be used to show you how good you are at keeping it. Here's a hint. If you think you're great at keeping the law after reading the law, you're reading it wrong. It's just not meant to be that. It is not meant to show you how much better you're doing than all of the other people around you. The law is designed as a neon flashing sign that you, yes you, need a savior. That you cannot and must not and will never put your hope in law keeping. Because you know and I know you're hosed if you do that. You are in a world of hurt. That will never come through for you. This is really hard for humans to grasp. I think rationally, we know in our brains, of course we can't be good enough long enough. Of course! Who can? But still we can rationalize. We can fall back over and over again to rules and law. The very mistake the Pharisees and scribes were making that Jesus called out. Ray Comfort is another guy I like to watch uh, on my lunchtime. He goes to Santa Monica Pier often, and he uses this principle that he found uh, in Jesus, and it's basically this. Think about this for a second. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. By the way, as I'm talking with Mark, I'm just saying a quick prayer. I said, God, I'm here, and I'm available, and I'm open to let this conversation get personal. Mark's an individual that you created and love and see I'm not sure where he's at with you, Lord, but I'm here and available and ready to open my mouth and take this conversation personal. It didn't get personal. He was helping other customers and whatnot. It it left very pleasant. We got to talk about the Bible. We got to talk about the Lord, but I just sort of left it at that. Ray Comfort is a master at just being able to sort of talk to people and offer up this law to the proud, grace to the humble. When you come across someone who's proud, you offer them law, and you look no further than than, than, than the Ten Commandments. Ray just does this masterful thing. Here's an example from Scripture. Uh, Jesus gives law to the rich young ruler. He's proud. He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. He's got it all going on, right? Comes to Jesus, what must I do to be good? What else do I need to do? He refers to law. What does the guy say? Yeah, I've done all those. Checklist, 
nailed it. I'm the best in my class. What else? Jesus doesn't extend grace. He actually gives one more law. What does he give? Remember? Sell everything you have and, and do what with it? Give it away. Go give it to the poor. What's the guy do? He goes away sad. He goes away sad. Jesus gave him law to expose his pride. The law is a schoolmaster. It's a tutor that says, hey, you need a savior. You can't ever measure up. Did this guy keep the law perfectly to honor his father and mother perfectly? To never lie, to never covet, to never steal, to never look with lust? Of course not. She just didn't even need to go there. Oh, I just got one more for you. That's it. He couldn't do it. Grace to the humble. There's a woman caught in adultery. She's actually part of a sting operation to bust Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus sees through it. She's caught in her sin. What does Jesus do? Preach the seventh commandment to her. You shall not commit adultery. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. It's hard to think of a more humiliating, humble state than this woman is in. And Jesus offers her grace. Where are your condemners? There's no one, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. Does he dismiss the law as irrelevant? No. After that, go and sin no more. Once again, is everyone hearing music? I just, there's going to come a day when it's only me. Can we, can we turn off the music? If that happens, yeah, it may be time to swap out. Okay. Um, woo. We're back. All right. The end is near. Yeah, that's right. All right. Lot of the proud, grace to the humble. We're going to look next week at some more of sort of how Jesus interacted with that. Um, at First Timothy, there's this great line. Paul says this. He says, the law is good if it's used lawfully. He's being a little bit cheeky with that, isn't he? But he's saying there's a way to use the law in your own life and to beat up other people that is unlawful. The law is good. In fact, the Bible says it's good and just and beautiful. It's to be delighted in if it's used lawfully. All right, here's a great question. Did God create us unable to keep the law? If we can't keep the law anyways, why on earth did God create the law? That's a really great question. Let me give you a little tool. This is how my family has been learning the New City Catechism. We're through all 52 questions now, so now we're just sort of going back and reviewing. Listen to how incredibly portable this truth is. Okay? This is question number 15, and it says this. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Does that seem relevant to our passage today? It does. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Threefold thing. We sometimes use hand motions to do this. Here it is. We say this, that we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our human hearts. This is half of a heart. It's broken. And thus, our need for a Savior. That'll, that'll, that'll preach, and that'll go with you. That's like a cool little truth you just put in your back pocket. What's the purpose of the law if we can't keep it? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. That's it. The law points us to the solution. The law points us to the one who fulfilled it. I'm going to skip a whole section on Romans 7 because I'm out of time. Would you please do me a favor? Would you please at least considering reading all of Romans 7 tonight before the sun goes down?
or before you go to bed. Some of you are like, I literally don't have a free moment before the sun goes down. I get it. If you read Romans 7, which happened to come up in my Bible reading program, actually it was in Eli's Bible reading program, and we were reading it together. I read it on Monday this week. I'm like, there it is. This whole idea of the law and being dead to it and now belonging to another. You just read it yourself. It'll blow your mind. It's such a great companion to what we are talking about and all of that. Let me close with this. As you read law, celebrate that the law-fulfilling Savior is the one you now belong to, Christian. Every time that you see an ethical instruction or a law in Scripture, I hope this spurs you to glory in your Savior, to worship your Savior in a hundred different ways. He says, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's talking about is this. Praise be to God that Jesus is the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. I enter the kingdom of heaven based on his merit, never on my own. I can't tell you how relieving that is. That's so relieving, isn't it? Works salvation is trying to earn something that can't be earned and you don't deserve. You'll never do it. How much good is good enough? You'll never get it. By the way, you're racking up more and more sin every hour that you live. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, catch this, yet without sin. He's not a lawbreaker like us. He's a law keeper. He's a law fulfiller. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in in our time of need. Church, when you read the rules of the Bible, the link to Jesus is perfectly clear. I already mentioned this, that these are the rules he read. When he was in his home and it was appealed that he shouldn't do this or that, it's the Ten Commandments that were spoken of. When he went to church, when he sang, when he discussed, these are the very rules he, 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 he abided by and understood. Here's a second thing. When you read rules and ethical instructions, if you ever find an ethical requirement or you ponder some ethical dilemma that looks like it's hard to fulfill both, think about this. Jesus solved the dilemma. He's the only one who lived the life you should have lived and I should have lived but could never have lived. So we revel in that. We glory in that. Band, come on up. Don't get distracted by the band coming up. Okay, this is really important. We're landing here with three really clear action steps. If you're writing things down, you might want to write this down. Maybe you already do this, but ask these questions when you read your Bible this week. When you read your Bible this week, learn to ask these questions. Is there a command to obey? Is there a command to obey? And secondly, is there a warning to heed? So go back to our text today. Jesus clearly says, learn and obey the commandments. What's the warning? Don't disregard the commandments, and don't you dare teach others to relax the commandments. There's a command to obey and there's a warning to heed in our text today in Matthew chapter 5. That's step one. Here's step two. Before seeking 
To obey a command or heed a warning, ask one more question. How did Jesus fulfill this? Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill the law. How? That's a really important question to ask. This guards you from jumping into works righteousness. This reminds you of this proclamation message of the gospel. God has done it. Friend, you can never do it. You can't make things right with a holy God. That's a part of what Leviticus is about, by the way. His complete otherness than us. Here's step three. Obey. In the power of Christ, live the life that he lived. We can walk as Jesus walked because he's freed us. Sin is dead to us. Over time, he begins to nurture our appetites and desires so that sin, even the whiff of it, oh, that's got to get out. That's disgusting. Changes our desires from the inside out. My eight-year-old daughter this week got all ready for bed. She came in to my bedroom. She said, I'm all ready, Daddy. I'll be laying in my bed. I said, come over here. I said, Everly, thank you so much for telling me how much you love me. She goes, what do you mean? I said, Everly, when you obey like you did, you just got ready for bed so awesome tonight. Do you know that when you do that, you're telling your dad, I love you? She goes, I am? We say this all the time to our kids. This is why you repeat things. I said, yeah. So I love you too. And she just got this radiant smile. How do I know this is true? Because Jesus taught me that. If you love me, what does he say? You will keep my commandments. To earn your righteousness, nonsense. Based on this place of it's already done. It's finished. So now we obey from a place of love and joy and honor. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for loving us. We say we love you today. With our presence here, God, we're saying we love you. God, would you help us to say we love you with how we treat one another, not just over food, but giving way in the parking lot. God, I pray that we would say we love you by how we conduct ourselves at school this week, in our homes when we're tired and cranky. God, on the job when no one's watching and we have chances to cut corners. We love you. God, nurturing us a delight for your law. It's good and pure and just. Amen.